This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we will talk to Patrick Wyman, former MMA media turned history podcaster. We'll also speak with Dr. Margaret Goodman of VADA about medical protocol in this age of COVID-19. And we'll also hear from Dana White with some various interviews that he've done, he's done and what it all means. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 3 p.m. on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156. Uh, happy uh, Friday to you. Let me check in here very briefly with our intrepid producer who is in the bowels of New Jersey very quickly. It is the one and only king of banter, Mike Russo. Hi, Mr. Russo. How are you? Calling it the bowels of New Jersey is not quite correct. It's a very lovely suburb in Bergen County. So what should we call it? The the esophagus. <laughs> it's probably a little cleaner. Yeah. Uh, hey, so. guess what today is? Uh, it is a special day. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Any guesses? No, none. It is. My daughter turns eleven months old today. Eleven months old. Ooh, getting close yeah. to that one year birthday, huh? Yeah, she's gonna have to have an indoor crappy birthday, but she won't know the difference. So who cares, right? Yeah. She won't remember. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, we had ponies. Sure. You know, right? Uh, all right. We'll check in with you a little bit later. For the time being, I want to get to this audio. So Dana White has, it's interesting. He's He's gone on a bunch of podcasts that I think are very friendly to him, which of course is his right. Doesn't have to go anywhere. We try to book him on the show several times. Not this week, but in the past. Doesn't want to do it. Of course, that's his right. Um, he's been pretty mad. A lot of folks think he's been mad at me. He might have. I'm sure he is. You know, I, I don't know specifically that he is, but... I'm sure that he is, but it's actually been something else. I think it was a bloody elbow story on uh, Endeavor laying off uh, uh, their employees. Now, Endeavor did announce, the parent company of the UFC, that they're laying off up to 250 employees, but I think it's like Endeavor-specific employees. The UFC has sort of proudly said it up to this point, and good on them if it's true, and I, I tend to believe that it is, that they've not delayed any, or excuse me, they've not um, laid off anyone during this pandemic. Let me hear what he had to say. This is, uh, by the way, from uh, Robbie Fox's podcast, My Mom's Basement on Barstool Sports. A guy wrote today, UFC is going to be laying people off, and he's fucking gloating about it. First of all, it's a lie. It's not even true. He saw a statement that Endeavor is laying people off, and, he, and then he said something like, hey, Dana, you got bosses now. Uh, you know, you might want to check. No, I don't, motherfucker. You have no <laughs> idea what my situation is, you fucking lying little weasel. You know what I mean? <laughs> so and we're not I mean, any, Listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I don't give a fuck how long this lasts, how long this fucking goes on. I'm not laying anybody off. It's not fucking happening. Yes. You know, and there's a lot of things that I will fucking do to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I'd make those decisions, okay? Yeah. So it won't happen. Hey, if that's true, who could be mad at that? I'm not mad at that. Um, good. I mean, who wants to see people get furloughed, laid off, fired in the middle of a global pandemic? So if that's something he can do and guarantee, um, I would. Yeah, who could be angry at that? Now, I wonder if that is contingent upon doing shows, which makes it a little bit more complicated, but in a vacuum, not laying off people is obviously a good thing. This part I always find kind of interesting. It's like, oh, we're not going to tell people what we're doing our shows. I mean, I don't know how you can... Okay, let's see what he has to say first. Do you have the location? Is it set? 
I know I'm not telling the media anything. (laughs) I'm not telling them anything. Okay. Because every day when I wake up, there's a bullshit story or somebody doesn't like this or somebody doesn't like that. I don't give a fuck what you think, what you like or don't like on April 18th. You either want to turn on the TV and watch this fight or you don't. You don't even have to fucking show up because there's not going to be any fans there. You don't have to come cover it. You either want to watch it or you don't. I don't give a fuck either way. This thing's happening somewhere on (laughs) April 18th. Well, we'll see about that to start. But second of all, just, I mean, isn't it weird that like the UFC... Well, I, I'm not. I, I want to be clear about this. I don't know what the rules are about not announcing that ahead of time, but like operating in secret. I mean, just think about something here for a second. It's like I don't want to tell the media anything. Why? Because it might they might try to get it shut down. I mean, I, I'm not going to call the relevant athletic commission, so I don't know how that would matter. But uh, it's like under. Think about this from the media's perspective for just a second. One of the most lucrative things you can do just to like get more attention for yourself and like build a follower uh, account and all that kind of stuff is to let folks know what the next fights are when the next event is happening. Like that's a really lucrative thing. He's not denying them that because oftentimes the UFC will feed those to reporters. He's denying it because I'm guessing, and I don't know this for a fact that they don't want further scrutiny about it. And it's like, you know, normally this is a thing you would want to parade because when everything is above board, who could possibly be against it? And I'm not saying, I'm not saying, here, here, this is the weird part. Like, we are in this weird space right now where, in terms of prior to the pandemic overtaking everything, uh, you could only trust the UFC to get everything right in terms of compliance. I said that before and I'll say it again. But we're in this space where literally, for example, the Nevada Commission can't even meet because they're worried about the pandemic and they don't think it's safe to do that. I've talked to other regulators in other states and they don't quite know what the path is. This is now unregulated territory because commissions don't know legitimately, like in good faith, they actually don't know how to handle that. So saying that, you know, this will all be in compliance and blah, 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 like that is technically quite true. And it should be noted that that is true. On the other hand, it's only true because the other commissions haven't had time to wrap their hands around this, which is why what we're calling for, people like me and others, is an abundance of caution related to epidemiological recommendations about what is safe and what is not. Just kind of a weird, it's just a weird moment, man. Super weird moment. He says they can do a safe event. Let's hear. We're doing everything that we're being told to do by the governor, by the president. Um, by the CDC, we're doing everything we're supposed to do. Um, but we can put on a safe show with no fans and, and, and do all this stuff. We, we can do it. We have the facility to do it. We have the, uh, we have, uh, all the resources to do it. We, we, we can get this thing done. So yes, the show goes on. Uh, again, it depends what they mean by safe. Do they mean safe related to existing regulations? Then the answer is yes, that they can. The answer is yes. If safe relative to COVID-19 concerns, I would like to know what the plans are. Of course, they're not going to tell us anything. That's okay. But I, I, I would like to see what the plans are. Because if the plans are some testing, no testing, 
testing early in the week. It takes a few days to come back. Four-hour testing. Like, is there triage centers? Like, what all is happening there? So it's safe. I'm sure that relative to existing regulations, everything will be done. Relative to COVID-19 concerns is the only area where we have no idea what, if that's true or not. Uh, Dana said he's not going to hide in his house forever. I'm also one of these people that I'm not going to hide in my house for months. I can look at everybody always makes fun of how red I am, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I'm this red. I'm probably going to have a fucking heart attack in about three days. Who the fuck knows? Heart attack, cancer. Oh, you know, Dana, don't, don't talk like heart that. Accident. Don't well, talk let's go, like that. Listen, there's one thing that, that, that's going to happen for sure. I'm going to die someday. I don't know how, I don't know when, but it's going to happen. And if it's going to be the fucking coronavirus, then so be it. I'm not hiding in my fucking house for months. That's definitely not going to happen, no matter who tells me to fucking do it. Well, I mean, which is it? Like, we're going to comply with what the CDC and the president and the governor says? And what if they say that you have to do that in three months? But, okay, different story for a different time. Again, the whole issue with the coronavirus is that you could get it and be fine. You could get it and get sick, but ultimately recover you could get it and just, let's say, not be a statistic there. And I'm not wishing that he would. I hope he never has to get it. I hope no one in his family ever has to get it. I hope no one in the UFC ever gets it. Obviously, that's the whole point. But the issue is not about whether or not you get sick. The issue is not is that in traveling around, do you get somebody else sick and is that person vulnerable? Or do you get somebody else sick by spreading it and do they get somebody else sick that then they are vulnerable and it overloads healthcare systems and otherwise people who could get treatment for this now can't because we don't have the capacity to deal with this. You know, here's one argument people say all the time. First of all, it's a weird argument. Like, you know, people, more people die of car accidents in this country than, you know, coronavirus is only taking out a thousand or so. Well, first of all, that's some real death cult shit, number one. Number two, I would argue, yeah, I think the American obsession with cars and how we have built municipal planning in this country without effective public transportation has been a disaster in certain levels. I would absolutely agree that that's a real problem. But third, understand how empty that argument is. If there's no coronavirus, the existing healthcare infrastructure and resources are perfectly tasked with dealing with the load of trauma, right? Every year, you don't see about worries from doctors and, and healthcare providers and people in the supply chain did not, uh, out there saying, we don't know if we're going to be able to last in this because of all the car crash trauma. No, you never see that because they're perfectly situated to handle it. Our existing resources can manage it. What they can't manage is COVID-19 because most people are fine. Dana White might get it. I hope not. But if he does, he might be fine. That'd be fine. The issue is if you get somebody else sick and then because of how virulent it is, they end up requiring hospitalization. They end up requiring a ventilator. Here's what I don't want to be responsible for, getting it, spreading it to somebody, and putting someone in the hospital who needs a ventilator, but because the resources in the particular hospital they're in are so strained, they can't get it, and they die as a consequence. That was a preventable death that they couldn't prevent because the hospital didn't have the resources. That's happening right now in New York City. And if you think this is just a blue state thing, buddy, a reckoning is coming. It's coming. A reckoning is coming. It's going to hit red state America. It's going to hit it hard. Everyone is going to get hurt here. So this is what I need folks to understand about this. It's not about what just happens to you. 
It's about what happens to everybody. And are there deaths that could be made preventable by not overloading the healthcare system? Uh, Dana says, if the doctors tell them it can't happen, it won't happen. Let's hear that. That's interesting. And yes, obviously, if doctors came to me and said this thing can't happen, then it wouldn't happen. But if they can't, then when? How long do you hide from this thing? How long do you sit in your houses before it's safe? What's going to happen next flu season? This thing's just going to fucking disappear forever? I, oh, it's gonna, you're asking the wrong guy. I'm, I'm clueless about it. Me too. I am too, to be honest with you. Yeah, I feel everybody like everybody I think everybody's clueless yeah. about it. He raises a fair point. I don't think this is a bad point. Like, what are we going to do about next flu season? Yeah. I mean, this is scary shit, man. He's right. I don't know what the answer is there, but I don't understand his point. If you're telling us you'll not do it if the doctors say no, but then you're like, well, what, what about in three months? Are we just going to stop living our life? Well, which is it? Are you going to stop when doctors say no or not? Because what if in three months they tell you you also can't do it? Like That's the part that's not clear to me. And here's the other part I'd say about this and talking about it. Uh, I, you know, look, at some point, some of this might just give. I, I, I don't know how this is all going to go. People might go crazy in their homes and just decide that the overload in the healthcare system is worth it. I don't really know. I don't, I don't, and if it comes to that, maybe that's the better of the two options at some point. I mean, God only knows, right? But uh, remember, you've got NFL team doctors, and I don't know which doctors he's referring to here, but I, I don't, I don't, personally, I don't trust NFL team doctors because there's a lot of conflicts of interest. So when he says doctors, I'm not suggesting that's the case here. I would just like to know what he means by that. All right, we got a couple more of these. Let me, how long have I been doing this thing? I've been on the way a little while here. Um, let me just finish up here. You know what? Let me just finish up on these. This is Dana White going on um, uh, Chael's show. Because I guess Chael is hosting an underground uh, submission grappling tournament, which I find disappointing because I like Chael a lot. I don't know why he's doing it, but let's hear what, what's, what's up with that. Where's the submission underground that you're pulling off? and? People keep asking me. People keep asking me that too, and it's like, guys, I understand that we're in the production business and we're in the sports and we're in the. I understand all of these things, but if you don't understand in front of everything, we are in the regulation and compliance business. And when they change the regulations and they change compliance daily, it's very hard to put a puzzle together. Yeah, that was that was very good answering the question without answering the question. Where the fuck is this show going on? <laughs> Under ground good for you, you. Want to see it you want to see it? get yourself a subscription to ufc fight pass hey don't tell these dirty media motherfuckers anything tell them nothing these scumbags will be all over you trying to fucking you know shut your shit down immediately raising questions about health and safety during a pandemic if you had asked me when i got into this business of all the times I would have faced resistance for an idea. Anti-doping, yes. Yes, that part I would have gotten. Health and safety during a pandemic, never would have seen it coming. Never, never, never in my wildest dreams would I thought we'd be here. But, you know, if you got to hide your show from the media for fear that media scrutiny will shut it down, I don't, I'm not convinced, I mean, it could be, but I'm not convinced the media is the problem. By the way, Dana apparently did not like Tiger King. Come on, Dana. How's that possible? I, I can't watch fucking TV shows. Everybody's talking about this fucking Tiger King and all this shit. I tried to watch the Tiger King last night. I did one episode and I go, wait a minute, there's fucking seven more of these. They couldn't tell me the fucking whole story in one show. So I went right from number one to number fucking eight. I watched the first one and the last one. 
It's a bunch of fucking hillbillies. Of course they're out there fucking, you know, shooting each other or whatever the fuck's going on. Man, I can't get caught up in that. I got enough fucking drama on my own without getting dealing with other people's fucking drama. You know, it's actually not a bad recitation of the plot. <laughs> he's not. This is pretty good, actually. It's a bunch of hillbillies shooting and doing whatever else they're doing to each other. Yeah, it's kind of about right. I can't, I can't say that's wrong. That's pretty close. The Luke Thomas Show is your one-stop destination for MMA. If you're in a UFC title fight and you get finished in the first round, yo, you lost. Sports. I cheer for loser teams. As well as pop culture and entertainment. No matter what Star Wars comes out, I'll just find a way to like it. No. The Luke Thomas Show, weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. On your home for combat sports. Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 and the Sirius XM app. Now included free for most subscribers. And joining me now on the hotline is uh, President Avada. I believe she's up, uh, on the board as well. Longtime ringside and cageside physician in the state of Nevada. It's Dr. Margaret Goodman. Hi, uh, Dr. Goodman. How are you? I'm doing very well. I hope you guys are all doing well at this time, too. We certainly are doing our best. And I want to make clear the President Avada, the Voluntary Anti Doping Association. Um, Dr. Goodman, I want to get you on because I- I'm trying to, I am not interested in bashing promoters. I'm trying to understand the medical basis by which you were expressing some concerns about any kind of combat sports shows going forward. So um, obviously we have – here's my read on things, Doctor. I would love to know your perspective, which is there's a set of protocol that Nevada and other states lay out that promoters have to follow. But with this global pandemic that has hit, I have not seen Nevada or California or New Jersey – issue any protocol about what best practices would be around that. And I think in that vacuum, there's some uncertainty. What would you like to see um, commissions do in terms of regulation related to COVID-19 in order to do a show safely? Okay, I mean, that's a, a, a very good question. But I think we're, we're, before we can even broach that, we need to get past this time. Right now, as you well know, and I think probably everyone worldwide knows, we're facing the pandemic that is in flux. Things are changing almost on an hourly basis as far as recommendations. People are ordered to stay at home. Borders are being closed. And it's, there's little testing that's probably needed to identify who has it, who had it, and who remains at risk. So with, given that fact... It, it makes sense to me that commissions really haven't set up any particular restrictions or recommendations. So I think if we're looking at time period, I would say at least for now, and hopefully not unto, to the foreseeable future, but at least the month of April, there really is no reason for combat sports to schedule an event. I think it would place absolutely everyone at risk. I mean, you can look at all kinds of permutations, locking the fighters up for two weeks, testing them daily. Are you going to lock up the the ring doctors? I mean, the corner men. I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense to be thinking about doing something at this time. Now, once we get past that period, where it looks like, you know, everyone talks about on television um, and in the media about lowering the curve so that the healthcare system does not get inundated, then you can kind of come up with possible recommendations on who should hold a contest. I mean, right now, there's so much that's unknown. I look, I am not a virologist. I'm not an infectious disease specialist. 
but I do have a neurology practice and I know that we're doing all kinds of things to keep my patients safe and my staff. And so at this point, it makes some sense, especially given all that MMA has gone through in the last, let's say, decade and a half. I mean, where they weren't even allowed on television or on, you know, they had to go in these pay-per-view events. I think I even attended one with uh, with the Zufa owners way, way back before they actually purchased the UFC back in, in a gym in New Orleans. So, I mean, things have gone so far. And to hold an event like this, I can't even fathom that a commission would want to stand by and see this at this time. So I guess the argument is, even if you had some kind of COVID testing, even if you had reduced personnel, even if you had, gosh, I don't know, a triage center in the event that you screen someone in the the week preceding and you find them that you could sort of separate them, in your judgment, given how uncertain all of this is, even with those ample resources, that's still not enough today medical protocol in place to do a show safely. Is that a fair assessment of your argument? The short answer is no. I mean, when you think about what goes on, look, I mean, you mentioned that I had been a ringside physician for a long time. I was probably one of the first ringside physicians to work the UFC when they started in Nevada. Okay, I was the chief physician then. And so I, I know everything that goes on. I understand the restrictions. I understand how things have changed through the years and improved. But what are you dealing with? You're dealing with saliva, you're dealing with sweat, you're dealing with blood, you're dealing with surfaces that can contain the virus for days on end. We don't 100% know what the incubation period is. So someone could test negative one day and then 24 hours later test positive. Why would anybody at this time want to risk all these individuals? Why would physicians want to risk themselves? And I can't imagine any kind of commission that's in existence would would really approve that. And I understand, look, I know, you know, I've been around fighters for so many years, and especially in continuing with VADA and our drug testing program, and we've worked with a lot of the MMA fighters and, and UFC fighters as well that we've tested. I know they want to fight. I know a lot of these guys and girls want a paycheck. I get that. But this is not the right time to consider that at this point. Hopefully, in maybe a month, things will change drastically. You know, I know that there's been put in place, you know, maybe until April 12th or April 13th. But no one knows that that's the right date. And so how are fighters supposed to train? You know, what do you, I mean, how are they supposed to be around their families? It, it's just very bothersome to me to even consider that this is point, given the risk. Um, okay, so... Again, Dr. Margaret Goodman joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. So one thing that has been suggested is that um, uh, that there's could be, there could be doctors that approve this. I, I recognize that all doctors don't necessarily share medical opinions. In fact, the whole idea of get a second opinion on a particular condition is always something a patient might want to pursue. Still, I can't imagine that there's wide variance beyond what you're suggesting. When a promoter says, oh, we'll have doctors on hand to deal with this, um, I'm not sure in what capacity they're providing an advisory component beyond just their services ringside. Are you aware of any of this? Like, how, how, When they say they're relying no. on the judgment of doctors, like which ones? Yeah, look, I mean, through the years as a neurologist, I remember uh, testifying in different court cases. And you can always get somebody, and I, and I don't mean this in, a, in so much of a negative 
opinion, but you can always get someone to disagree. But is that right? Does this make common sense? It, it makes absolutely no sense to even consider that this is point in time. And you can say, well, maybe things will drastically change by whatever the date is that, that one of the promoters is thinking about or that the UFC is thinking about. Hopefully it will change. Hopefully that curve that we're also worried about that could just take down the entire healthcare system will will change drastically. But it sure doesn't look like that now. And you can I can see arguments. You know, we see this uh, listening on television. You know, certain places in the country could open up because they're not hotspots yet. But they may become hotspots. And why would we even want to contribute to that? And why would we even want to take good health care people away from taking care of these critically ill patients to take care of an athlete that shouldn't be competing right now. It's just, it makes no sense to me. And, and it, it bothers me because I, I have great respect and admiration for MMA. I, I love the sport. I appreciate everything that the fighters go through as I know you do too, but it just, it bothers me to no end to think about resources being thrust into that milieu at this point in time. It just makes no sense. If we can speak to something a little bit different, and I think this is broader, more community-wide, and on some level I suppose I understand this, Doctor, which is to say there are people who think this is overblown in part because no one's ever really seen a global pandemic and other ones that were threatened to be H1N1, SARS, never really became them. And so there's this belief I have witnessed on all corners of MMA where people say, I just I just don't believe it. For those folks who are listening, and I know you're not a virologist or public health official in that particular way, still, you, you probably carry a little bit more weight with this argument than, than I do. What would you say to fans, fighters, managers, trainers, coaches, promoters, who might be listening to you right now about why this is significantly more of a dangerous threat than what we are have been accustomed to in the past? I would say, please just sit back and wait a bit. There's nothing wrong with waiting. You know, MMA will be here in the month of May or June or July or even towards the end of the year, but we have to see how this evolves. One thing I can tell you is my partner in life and uh, also works with Bada. he was the chief ringside physician for Nevada for many times, and he was instrumental in, uh, in helping uh, Zufa bring the UFC to Las Vegas, Dr. Flip Homansky. And he's an emergency physician. He oversees over eight emergency rooms in Southern Nevada. And, and luckily enough, I'm, I'm, I'm able to hear some of what's going on as far as help for healthcare personnel and for patients. This is so dangerous. It's so contagious. And, and you want to say, oh, it's just not going to happen to me. Well, it certainly can. I mean, I think there's a 17-year-old in Louisiana that just passed away. And you could say, oh, this just happens to somebody else. That's not true. The, the problem is, you know, when you, when you see on television and they say how many cases there are in uh, the U.S., I, I, I can't remember the exact number right now, it's probably five times that amount. And yes, maybe 80% of those patients will probably do extremely well. They may never know they even had it, but they're going to give it to someone else, someone else that certainly could be in critical condition. Why would you want those fighters to maybe be fine during an event, but then eventually they're going to go home or they're going to be exposed to other individuals, maybe just the officials and staff that are at this event, but maybe their family members? Why would you want to risk that at this point in time? Just sit back for a while and let's see how this plays out. And let's, let's pray that it's overblown. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful for all of us? 
It certainly would. Last question on this. As the head of VADA, sort of an open-ended question, but we'll end on this one. Given all of that uncertainty right now, in your mind, given what you know, what is the appropriate role of an anti-doping authority in this uncertain climate? Well, and, you know, I've listened and, and I have a great respect for, for Jeff Nowitzki and for what you saw it has accomplished. Let me say one thing, one thing that's, that I, you know, I don't often say, but, but I really believe that a lot of what VADA has done and the prodding that we promoted for so long has really helped the UFC to expand their drug testing. They had no drug testing uh, to speak of other than what was required by a commission, which was so minimal and insufficient. And it was one reason why we started VADA. And I was, for the longest period of time, I was very disappointed that the UFC had not enhanced their testing. It drives me absolutely nuts that no one promotes the need for drug testing in organizations like Bellator. But irrespective of that, I think that there remains to be a role for drug testing. Obviously, it's limited in this point of time. There has to be extreme extra precautions taken. I know with all the fighters that we have are predominantly boxers. We have some MMA athletes that are enrolled now. But we take extreme precautions when testing. You know, you have to take someone's temperature. You have to ask a series of questions. And also the other thing with the with the MMA fighters is so many of them are from different countries. And so it's difficult to tell. We're not getting accurate statistics from many countries as far as how many are affected. So when drug testing is carried out, and I still think that it is absolutely necessary, just like healthcare has to remain in place for those that don't have COVID or that could get it, you just have to take extra precautions. And there's no one thing that you can do to make sure that everyone's safe. But what are you going to do in a, in a fight? I mean, I mean, you can do this in drug testing. You can wear gloves. You can have one of those N95 masks. You can ask the athletes to do those things. You can make sure that there's limited exposure when you're drug testing them and you stay as far away as possible, just enough so that you can visualize what's going on as far as the process. But irrespective of that, what do you, how could that possibly happen during a fight? And I'm sorry to go back to the fight aspect, but it, it bothers me to no end. But yes, there is a continued place for drug testing, and drug testing needs to go. Because what would be worse at this point in time with athletes starting to dope and think that they could go ahead and use some of these substances that they think may help protect them from viral viral causes or even give them an unfair advantage at this point. You just, you have to, you have to maintain that program in place, even though obviously there's certain constraints. That will leave it on that. Dr. Margaret Goodman, really appreciate your time and insight. Of course, for more, uh, you can go to VADA, Voluntary Anti-Doping Association's website. Um, Thank you for your time today, doctor. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you very much for having me on, and thanks for all the good work you're doing. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial-free music plus sports, comedy, talk, and news. They have it all. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Go to SiriusXM.com busted to see offer details and to subscribe. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. All right, joining me now on the show is a gentleman uh, you MMA folks should know quite well. Of course, he was uh, one of the co-hosts of the Heavy Hands podcast. He had written for Deadspin, a bunch of other places as well. He had an initial podcast, The Fall of Rome, and then a secondary podcast, his current one, which is Tides of History. I'm having him on for a couple of reasons. One, he wrote a great piece for Mother Jones, and we'll talk some MMA as well. But it's the one and only Patrick Wyman. Patrick, how are you? Good, sir. I'm doing wonderful. How are you holding up? Um. Strangely, like everybody else, my friend. Strangely, I think yeah, I, you know what's, 
if you don't count walking the dogs, I haven't left the house in like a week and a half. I mean, that's leaving the house, but I mean like going anywhere. I haven't gone anywhere. Yeah, it's crazy. It's totally surreal. We're so used to being able to go anywhere, do whatever we want. Like suddenly we're restricted and like, how do we deal with that? Like it's, it's such a, it's just screws with your mind. Well, let's get into it before we um, we run out of time here. So let's start things off. You wrote this interesting piece. I want to make sure I get the title right here for Mother Jones. It's called, uh, How Do You Know If You're Living Through the Death of an Empire? Let's back up here just a, a little bit. Your expertise from folks who may not know in history is what? What do you specifically uh, study? Okay, so I did my doctoral work on the end of the Roman Empire. I mean, the fall of the Roman Empire, if you want to put it that way. Um, But basically, what does a collapsing state look like? So my particular specialty was in communications networks and mobility and travel. So um, how does the end of an empire affect your ability to go from one place to another, to send a letter from one place to another? What does it look like in that regard? Um, More broadly, it's about what happens when political systems fall apart, what happens when economic systems fall apart, um, what goes into that. this particular case, it's a it's a matter of pandemics, of plagues, of a changing climate, of political breakdown, and eventually economic meltdown as well. So it's a combination of all of those things. That's what I spent years and years and years working on. Uh, this, I'm going to ask for Cliff Notes versions on these, but <clears throat> to what extent is there good information about how the Roman Empire fell? Okay, so it is... It depends on what you're looking at. Different kinds of sources, whether you're talking about written sources or archaeological sources, things we dig up out of the ground, can tell substantially different stories. It looks a lot different depending on where you are. So if you are in Britain at the very fringes of the Roman world, the process of the Roman Empire coming to an end looks a lot different than it does if you're living in the city of Rome or if you're living in Milan or if you're living in Carthage in North Africa or if you're living in Constantinople, what's now Istanbul. Um, All of those things, all of those processes can look very different. They look very different depending on who you're reading, when you're reading them. Um, it's not to like not to be reductive, but it's complicated. But you, in other words, you we have some relative to other forms of historical scholarship. There's a lot of information yes. about this. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot. You can look at everything from the distributions of particular kinds of pottery, which tell you about transport networks. To I looked at letters. I tracked where letters were sent from. You can look at what historians had to say about it, because historians did have things to say about it. Um, we have a lot of information in a lot of different ways. There are always questions that you wish you could answer. There are things that you don't know. But yeah, we've got we've got a lot of we got a lot of material to work with. Put it that way. All right. All right. So again, give me the Cliff Notes version about the fall of the Roman Empire from a very, very broad perspective. Okay. And I'm going to make it about your article here in just a second. I just want to set this up a little bit for the viewers and the, and the mm-hmm. listeners. From a very broad perspective, why did it collapse? So you're looking at two centuries, more or less. This is a long, drawn-out process. It's not like one day there's a Roman Empire and the next day there's not. We're talking about a long, drawn-out process of systems failures, of collapses, of political authority, of economic systems not doing what they had been intended to do, of state collapse, of um, invasions from elsewhere, of political takeovers by previously marginalized groups, it, it, all of these things go into it. So it's not one thing. It's not that there is a cause. It's that it varies depending on where you're at. In some places, it's about the economy falling apart. It's about, you know, you used to get your bread from one, your grain from one place, your olive oil from another, your wine from another. And this was the kind of economic framework of your world. In some places that falls apart. In other places, you're talking about violent invasion and political takeover. It, like, so in the Balkans, Attila the Hun goes through and 
hundreds of thousands of people die. And that's what the collapse of the Roman Empire looks if, if you're talking about like modern day Serbia. If you're talking about Britain, it's a long drawn out process of migration from the from the North Sea coast of the continent. Um, if you're talking about Italy, Everything looks fine for quite a while, and then all of a sudden you've got a drastically changing climate, a series of plagues, and devastating wars that kill about half the population. So depending on where you're at and when you're at, it looks a lot different. We're talking about different things. It's not like the fall of the fall of the Roman Empire is one thing. It's a whole lot of things, many of them very small things, that in that in the aggregate become a very big thing. So again, getting back to the piece, how do you know if you're living through the death of an empire? Two-part question, I guess, are kind of related, though. One, why did you write the article? And two, what does it have to do with today? So I wrote the article because I'm mad, because I'm angry, uh, because I'm looking at the way that we're responding to a pandemic, and I, I just see failure everywhere. I see the I see systemic failure. And it reminded me a little too uncomfortably of the things that I spent a long time working on, um, mostly in the fact that it's little things. Um, it's not big, dramatic events. It's not like, you know, barbarians standing in the courtyard of a villa pulling statues down, like something that looks great in a something that looks great in a video. It's like the failure to deliver necessary protective equipment to a hospital. Um, it's a shortage of ventilators. It's um, political figures sticking their head in the sand and being unwilling to acknowledge facts that are right in front of their eyes. These are these are like individually, these are not like big things. They're not dramatic. They don't necessarily seem that important. But when you put them all together, that's what a failing state looks like. That's what a falling empire looks like. It's little things. It's not like um, – yeah, we expect these big dramatic moments like we expect to know that something is wrong. But what's wrong is little things and the little things when you add them all up, when you put one little pebble on top of the other, sooner or later, you've got a whole cascading series of failures. What would people say in response to this who had questions? What would they would say, what about the framing of the United States versus what the Roman Empire was? Is that a fair comparison? And um, maybe any, any other sort of objections that were raised, fair ones, not the crazy ones, but the fair ones, like help people understand why that, why, why thinking about the historical parallels are relevant, even if they, and I know that they're rhyme, but I mean the contextual framing of U.S. versus Roman Empire. Okay, so from the very beginning, Americans have compared themselves to Rome. Um, the founding fathers were obsessed with the Roman Empire. They were obsessed with the classical world. This was part of their part of their understanding of how politics worked was based on Roman models. So it's there whether we want it to be or not. But I think more broadly, we're talking about large, complex states that encompassed a lot of diversity, um, that had a lot of different layers of political authority operating at the local level, at the regional level, and at the empire-wide level. The interaction between those levels of authority was necessary to keep the empire running. You had complex systems that had to run smoothly. Um, and when those systems started to break down is when you started to see the problems. And I think we're looking at the same kinds of parallels here. So no, it's not a direct comparison. Nothing in history ever is. It's a matter of what analogies can we draw and are they useful tools to think with? And I think when we're looking at the case of the, the end of the Roman Empire, I see these cascading kinds of systems failures, of these failures to communicate, these um, small problems snowballing into becoming big ones. That's where I see the parallel. Like we shouldn't want to be the Roman Empire. Um, we're like the Roman Empire was a it was a state founded on massive exploitation, um, chattel slavery, uh, enormous structural inequality, um, violence. Uh, a lot of iron fists inside really fancy looking velvet gloves. Um, 
those are not things that we should necessarily want to emulate. Um, and it's not like, you know, to raise another pertinent objection, the end of the Roman Empire isn't bad for everybody. Um, you live in a more local world. You live in a world that's probably more violent, uh, but population health might get better. Um, there are fewer people, but those who remain might actually be better off, especially the lower you are down the social scale. So it's not like everything is bad, but, but large-scale states do important things. We should try to understand how, what it looks like when a large-scale state falls apart. Um, this is not the only parallel. I just think it's one that I'm familiar with, and I could see the, I could see the ways in which it rhymed. Um, and I thought it was worth pointing that out. Um, so yeah, that was more or less where I was coming from. So if someone is watching this or hearing this now and they're trying to internalize what this means for them, okay, uh, Patrick Wyman's historical comparisons resonate with me. He's making a sound argument. How am I to interpret what this means for my, my 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 life today and where life might be headed in the United States? Like you met you you spoke of localizing. Okay, let's localize it all the way down. For someone watching this, what does this mean for them? So what it means is we take for granted what the federal government is supposed to do. We take for granted that it is the backstop that underpins the rest of our system. So the United States is weird as a country in that it has a lot of redundancies. It has a lot of layers of government. Um, normally this is a problem because it creates a lot of friction um, between varying levels of authority everywhere from the municipality to the county, to the state, um, to, the, to the federal level. Um, in this case, it's giving us a, a little bit of slack as different levels of authority can do things to respond to this crisis. But at the end of the day, we still need the federal government to do things, especially when it comes to managing the macro economy. The federal government needs to get its acts together. It needs to pass bills. It needs to address what are what are the problems that it's designed to deal with. So if you're trying to understand how this matters for you, when those things start to break down in really manifest ways, that's what that's going to mean for you is a lack of masks for doctors and nurses to wear in hospitals. It's going to mean that if you are unfortunate enough to be stricken with this disease, you may not have a ventilator to keep you alive if you're in critical condition. That's why these what seem like abstract small things matter a very great deal in the aggregate. That's how they come back and they impact your life. You know, if you're living in the Roman world and um, your local garrison of soldiers doesn't get its food and they decide they're going to march off and go home, well, the next time the barbarians come, you're in trouble. Same deal here. We depend on the federal government to do to carry out these functions. Now, whether they should or whether they should be more decentralized is a different question. We're going to have to find some sort of solution to them or we're going to deal with the consequences. That's the upshot. It's that we have these failures. They're supposed to be handled by this one particular level of government. Either we demand better from that level of government and try to find some way to get them on it, or we find some way to devolve authority. We ask other layers of authority to handle these things that the federal government would normally do. Now, some of that just can't be done. Some of it has to be done at the federal level, especially as regards unemployment insurance, as regards some sort of universal basic income. That stuff has to be handled at the federal level. So we got to ask them to do it. We got to make them do it as they're, they're responsible to us. You know, these are our, these are our politicians, at least theoretically. Um, so if we want them to solve that, we need to make it clear that they need to do so. <laughs> what do you make of the idea? And again, this is uh, certainly far outside my uh, I mean, I have no expertise here, but I've seen other historians compare what's happening now to the fall of the Ottoman Empire in the early parts of mm -hmm. the 20th century, the sick man of Europe. Yep. Is there, do you have any do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. So I think um, 
The Ottoman parallel also works because it was a large and diverse polity, right, that was ruled by a central government that wasn't functioning especially well. There was a lot of autonomy out in the in, in the Ottoman provinces. Governors could do more or less what they wanted. And that's eventually what a lot of them just did. They just did what they wanted to do. And I think if you're looking for a parallel here, it's that the governors of various states are going to kind of do what they need to do. Um, in the absence of federal authority, lower levels of authority will will pick up the slack. Um, now, we should probably be concerned about the long-term consequences of that. Um, if we have precedents for state governors just ignoring federal directives, even if they're stupid directives, that sets a long-term precedent that, that we're going to need to think about here. Um, I think that's why this situation is important. It's not just the stuff that's happening right now. It's that we're laying the groundwork for trends and processes that are going to be happening for the next several decades. All right, let's turn. Oh, I want to come back to this in just a minute, but for the time we have remaining, I want to talk a little bit about MMA. I have. I said this earlier on the show, Pat. I have to tell you, if you had asked me if I when I got into this business, what would be some of the most ferocious pushback you ever got, and if I had said, well, I had sort of unorthodox views on anti-doping, I could have said yes. That sounds about right. That's going to take a lot of convincing for people. It's not going to be a very easy task. If you had said, don't hold sporting events during a global pandemic. I would have been I would have been very surprised by that. Um, and I'm trying to make I, I often get into this bad habit, Pat, where I kind of like, you know, bang my fist down the four mica and ask to see the manager and people don't listen. So I'm trying to make a reasoned argument. Um, and I've got a few different ways to look at this. But when you see the UFC trying to plow through and they're not alone, by the way, in the MMA space, other actors have as well trying to host shows during a global pandemic. Um, what is your thought about what is happening? OK, so. On the one hand, it's from a kind of a raw economic perspective, it's not that surprising to me because these companies are running at a uh, running on the financial edge. Um, the owners of the UFC for a long time have used it as a piggy bank, right? They've used it as their own personal money machine to get money out when they need it for their things. The Fertitas did this when their casino business was in trouble. They got a nice little dividend to keep their casino business running. Um, WME and the other UFC investors just pulled out a nice big chunk of money from the UFC. The, the upshot is that there is not a lot of operating capital. They do not have a lot of cash on hand. So if you're not going to be running events, then you don't have cash coming in. And that eventually means the collapse of the business. So on the one hand, this is pure self-interest, right? This is, these companies feel like, the, I think that's where Dana White's bluster is coming from. Like, I think he feels the guillotine, uh, the edge of the guillotine coming down, you know, like there's, if the UFC can't run events, it's not like they have all of these deeply rooted structures and um, like this fine system that's going to see them through the next six to 10 months. The UFC runs like a clown car, you know, barely kind of puttering along from one event to the next, trying to plug holes as they come up because they don't have a lot of staff and infrastructure. That's just how they're set up. They've got more now than they used to, but it's still not much. So on the one hand, it makes sense from that perspective, but what, and to some extent, MMA fans, the media fighters take their cues from Dana White. So if he's out there screaming that we've got to do this, we've got to do this, it's fine. That's not that surprising. On the other, it's absolutely mind boggling, right? <laughs> that, that, that like the reality of this has not yet sunk in. Um, and on the one hand, like, let's be sympathetic. I understand it. This is, this is surreal. Nobody alive has lived through a global pandemic like this, you know? So the reality of people dying in FEMA tents is not something that, pe that that folks are going to be able to wrap their heads around easily. Like nobody has a perspective on what 5,000 deaths a day would look like, you know? 
So trying to get across to people that um, they should be willing to suspend normal operations for the sake of, um, you know, keeping themselves and other people alive is hard to do. It's nuts to try to run events here because by by its nature, fighting is an international sport. You're going to be bringing people around from all over the place. You're going to be taking them through highly trafficked areas where they're going to be exposed to things. It's not just a matter of those people getting sick. It's that every individual who's traveling is an opportunity to spread a disease that could cause death. And like it's not – again, it's not that surprising to me that people don't grasp this because they have no point of comparison for it. And I think when you have – the combination of the lack of a point of comparison plus an authority figure that for whatever reason people respect and like um, who's shouting that everything's going to be OK. I think that's a really toxic, dangerous mixture. And but, yeah, I mean, to your point, like I never would have thought that it would be this extreme. So the, the other sort of factor here to consider is you know, in MMA, I, I would love to if you could speak to this. You can never, ever have a discussion on the merits. Have you ever noticed that? No. Yep. It's always a function of some other kind of sleight of hand. It's what the fighters want or um, everyone's in favor of it or there's nothing wrong or we can do it safely. And they never really say, here's why we didn't do COVID testing for UFC Brasilia. Now, there might be some going on behind the scenes. Francis Ngannou said he got some, although his opponent, Jair Rosenstruck, said he did not. So it's not really clear exactly what's happening there. Uh, nevertheless, though, the the entire debate to me in, that is taking place in public is totally artificial. It's about points that it's not functionally about. And frankly, I have no idea how to solve that problem. You can keep raising what the thing is about, but people keep mm -hmm. dragging it back to the talking points that come from more, when I say authoritative, I mean more popular, more powerful sources. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there is a solution for it yet, but all I can say is this. We, we haven't actually hit the event yet. We're still in the lead up to to the thing that's going to happen. And like there's a lot of pressure right now. I mean, again, coming from those authority figures to act like this is normal and it's not, you know, and frankly, the way I think about that is that that's a panic response. The rational response to this situation is to say, OK, we need to we need to pause normal life for a little bit. We need to put systems in place that are going to allow us to deal with this exogenous shock this really bad thing that's happening that is not within our control to deal with. That's the rational response. Trying to say, well, people got to go to work. We got to do our thing. That's the panic response. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and it's a panic response because everybody feels this, this tidal wave coming. Like people, people can feel it whether they're rationally aware of it or not. But the event hasn't happened yet. The thing that we're that we all need to be concerned about, the actual peak of this has not happened in the United States yet. New York is going to get worse. Louisiana is going to get worse. Florida is going to get worse. There are maybe like two or three places in the United States that are that are at the peak or past the peak. Maybe Washington, like maybe especially like Snohomish and King counties, like the very beginning places where this started there. Those are the places where maybe, maybe. You're you're looking at something close to normalcy coming back within a month or two months. I just think people don't have any um, sense of that. like they may kind of uh, feel it, but they don't know it yet. And so everybody like a lot of people are really desperately trying to pretend that this isn't going to happen or that we're somehow past it or that we can start talking about the future and we're not there yet. Um, Go ahead. 
yeah, no, I mean, does that make any sort of sense at all? No, of course it does. I mean, I, I've said this before. I had a, a buddy of mine who we have political disagreements, but this is not a, this is very much a smart person, evidence-based. This is how they operate. You know, again, we don't always find political consensus, but I never find them to be not thoughtful about things and well-read and considerate. They're, they're, they're exercising social distancing. Like they're doing the things a responsible mm-hmm. citizen would do and listening to authorities. But he, the fundamental belief that he had was that this is all overblown and in 30 days it will go away. Mm-hmm. And I asked why. And he's like, I just don't see any evidence of it. And that my indication there was until it is something catastrophic happens to him mm-hmm. personally or in an observable way, which is what the difference is between like a 9-11 or a Katrina yeah. or a mm-hmm. natural disaster is because you can literally witness the, the, the peril and death. Exactly. This is a slow-moving hurricane that is almost invisible mm-hmm. in some cases, right? Yeah. And, and again, like I think the – that's a that's a really excellent point because we're narrative creatures, right? We understand things as a story and we we expect there to be a climax. We expect there to be this like really visible thing. And this is true of falling empires too, like to come back to the to bring it all the way back around. This is true of falling empires too. But in a pandemic, you don't have that. They're slow, they're insidious. Even the even the quickest moving diseases, it's not like you watch it's it's very rarely like somebody gets sick in the morning and they're dead in the afternoon. You know, it's days and days and days and it's people cooped up in their house, people dying in their houses, people dying in hospitals away from their loved ones, especially in this case, because it's so infectious. People are dying alone, you know, so it's not even like their families are there to carry this horrific story of these people's last hours drowning in their own fluids. Um to to a waiting world. Um, hospitals are largely uh, hospitals are largely closed off. So where this is happening is not especially visible. But if you look at Italy, you, you know, it's pretty chilling to see a convoy of military trucks all loaded down with coffins going from one place to another. When you hear about hockey rinks being used as morgues, that's like th- that's chilling stuff. And I think what people need to see are those images to, for it to finally sink in. Um, you know, I tweeted this out a couple of days ago, but like during the Black Death, they dug in in Europe in the 14th century. Um, people died so fast that they dug mass graves for them. Um, that may seem like a thing that belongs in the Middle Ages, but you know what? They did that during the the last Great Flu pandemic. They just found one a few years ago outside Philadelphia, a mass grave that had been dug in 1918, 1919. These things are real. Um, this is this the the 1918 flu pandemic just passed out of living memory. Like. That's the kind of stuff that – I mean they're digging mass graves in Iran. Like this is stuff that's going to ha- – that, that can and will happen. It's just the fact that we don't have those dramatic visuals yet I think makes it really hard for people to wrap their heads around. I understand it. Like I, you know, you got to have some, th- some sympathy for it. Like this is – it's terrifying stuff um, and it's hard to it, – it's hard for us to accept it. Yeah, I was going to say very quickly, we have to go, but um, they were digging mass graves in Iran. They sympathy the healthcare, and they were. I saw the New York Times was reporting that there was uh, hospitals in New York that had to rent produce trucks because they had to store the bodies to take them to the morgue. They had no place to put them. You can't leave yep. them in the hallways. So we're going to see how this all transpires. Last thing, we got to go. Tell folks if they want more of your work, how they can get it. So you can find my work at the Tides of History podcast. We've got at least three episodes coming out every month. I've got some on past pandemics that have just come out on the Justinianic plague of the 6th century, the Black Death of the 14th century. If you want to learn more about past pandemics and what they look like and how they feel, um, you can check those out. That's the Tides of History podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman. I'd love to chat with you. There he is. Patrick Wyman, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Hey, thanks so much, Luke. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. 
listening. Catch The Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L. Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.